0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Long before white people migrated to the vast lands across the Missouri River, Native Americans battled constantly for the desirable countryside. As a rule, three things could happen to a weak tribe. And all three things were bad. At worst, they were exterminated. Uh, If they escaped that, they could be assimilated. Uh, Or more often than that, they were driven out to a less desirable area, such as the inhospitable desert lands of the Great Basin and the southwest. I think I've got a picture here. Yeah. Sometimes the tribes would adapt to the harsh lands that they'd been driven out to, and they turned a tough situation into a positive The most dramatic example of this was a tribe called the Nurmerna. In their language, the name meant the people. Now, these Nurmerna were a short, squat, dark-skinned, common-looking tribe living in the northern Rockies. They were beaten, bullied, pushed around and shoved from one place to the other by the stronger tribes. And eventually, after many years of being moved on, they ended up on the high, desolate plainlands of western Texas. And then something happened. In 1680, Indians living in New Mexico revolted and drove out the Spanish conquerors. And during the retreat, some horses escaped and wandered off into the plainlands. Now, horses were not native to North America. They'd been brought by the Spanish. And the, the Spanish had let the Indians take care of them but not ride them. But these horses flourished in the wild, and they became great herds of mustangs. And then one day, one of the nomona figured out you could actually ride a horse. And this changed their lives overnight. Within a few decades, they built their whole culture around the horse. To them, the horse was not just a creature, it was an object of worship. They learned selective breeding. They kept only the best studs and bred the best horses in the world now they could hunt the mighty buffalo and they could challenge the other tribes for supremacy suddenly they became the top dogs their children learned to ride by the age of five sometimes they could ride a horse before they could walk they became the most feared raiders of their time they extended their range by thousands of miles they ruled far south even into Mexico and east through Texas and nobody could stop them The once despised tribe became the lords of the plain lands. And for nearly 200 years, the Nurmurna, recognized as the horse Indians, were feared and respected. Now, you probably know them by another name, which was a name that they were given by another tribe, and it wasn't a compliment. They were Comanches. Comanches, the name meant something like a man who wants to kill me every time he sees me. And Comancheria, their land at its peak, covered 200 million acres. There it is. There's a map of America. That's how big their land was. But in 1874, the United States cavalry defeated them and put them on a reservation. And they were restricted to a plot of land less than 2% of the size of their previous country. How did it happen? How could the lords of the Southern Plains be so decisively defeated? Now, history gives several answers, and you know that the winners write history and the losers write poetry. But here's the most obvious reason for their downfall. They were divided, and so they were conquered. They were divided. In spite of their great skill and ambition and violence and power, they rarely functioned as a team. Their society lacked real cohesion. There was very little that tied them together. They weren't really a tribe. They were more a loose group of bands of Indians, and people could move out of one band to another, or men could, on a whim. So the white settlers used a simple strategy, divide and conquer. They were not united, and so they fell. Now, the letter to Titus, as you've already heard this morning, is a little gem in the New Testament, and we're on our final Uh, sermon in the series today. It was written by Paul, the apostle, to Titus, a key man in his church planting team. Titus had been left behind on the island of Crete to finish the work of establishing new churches. And so Titus is a mandate on how to plant a healthy church. It's timely for us to read and study this together as we seek to be a healthy church and, as you've already heard, we look towards planting a church, God willing, with Greg and Christina in the next 18 months or so. And we learn that the Christian church is not a building. You can't clean the church or turn left at the church. The church is not a building. It's a people, although it often meets in buildings. It's not a social club, although it has an inescapable social dimension. The Christian church, at its root, is a counterculture. It's a counterculture. It's a new culture. It's It's like a new city within the existing city. And it has its own set of values that are drawn out of God's word, the Bible, which at times look radical and challenge the values of the world around. Now, some scholars think that the letter to Titus, in terms of the kind of letter that it was, is most similar to an administration letter from a senior official in the Roman Empire to a junior official or a lieutenant in charge of a domain. The very form of the letter conveys something about its authority. Paul isn't running an empire, but he is a divine agent in spreading a dominion, the kingdom of God. And this kingdom offers real benefits of salvation and peace, justice and equity, of which the emperor's promises were only a parody. Now the fact that the Christian church is a new alternative society within the existing society accounts for two key words in our passage today. These two key words are the foundation for the teaching and I want you to try and guess what they are in verse 14. And I've got some strong mints if there's a member of the youth group who can guess what the two... I'm going to try and throw this up to you or James can get them. Verse 14, what do you think are the two key words in chapter 3 verse 14? Anyone in the youth group? Where are they? Nathaniel? Say again? That is brilliant. In fact, you're right. They are keywords to be devoted to, to, to doing what is good. But I'm looking for two words. Any advance youth group? Everyone's too shy now. Anyone who's not in the youth group? James? Yes, Rosie? unproductive lives I'm sorry I'm going to put the mints away the two words are our people our people our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives our people so Grace Church this is how we are to regard each other we are to think of other Christians as our people these are my people. This is where I belong. Now, there's a change of mind. If you think about it, that is a challenge to every culture. If you're from an Asian culture, maybe African, certain African cultures, you may think of, your, of my people as your extended family or as a, a certain ethnic group or a tribal group. If you're a Western person, your, your concept of my people is probably a lot smaller. It might just be the nuclear family that you grew up in. But who are my people, according to... This letter. Our people are the church that we're part of. These are the, you are my people. You're the ones I identify with. You're the ones I share my house with. My stuff. You're the ones who have a claim on my time and loyalty. Scripture says we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And you only do that if you really identify with them as your people. So that when they're weeping, you're sad too. And when they're rejoicing, you're happy too. When they win, you're winning. Because they're your people. So who, who are your people today? New Testament says our people are Jesus' people. The ones who belong to Jesus Christ. And they're drawn from an incredibly diverse ethnic, social, economic educational background Jesus Church is the most diverse organisation in the whole world and this is how we are to regard each other our people now if you see the local church and I know some are visiting so you may not be a Grace Church person if you see your church Christian friend as your people then you will pursue two things you will pursue strong unity and you will pursue Rich community. Strong unity, first of all. I only got two points today. Don't be too traumatized. I know you're expecting three, but there's only two points strong unity and rich community. Strong unity. Um, the main point we learned last week of chapter three is that uh, the kindness of God our Savior appeared in verse four, and He saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy poured out on us he saved us through the washing of rebirth we have new birth in Jesus Christ we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit who has been poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ so that we might become heirs we've now got an inheritance in the future with Jesus in a new creation and this Paul says is a trustworthy saying And that's what you've got to stress. Stress the positives. As Jez taught us last week, we need to remember who we were before we knew Jesus. We need to revel in God's kindness and love to us. And we need to respond to it by being devoted to what is good. But, my real text this week begins with the word but, verse 9. Some people are not devoted to what is good. Some people are not devoted to what is good. And so we need strong unity. Their behavior threatens the unity of the church. So Paul turns from this positive teaching in verses 4 to 8 to some warnings on how to deal with false teachers, people who thrive on conflict. There are two stages here based on two dangers. They both begin with D, the danger of distraction and the danger of division. First of all, distraction, look with me at verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. So you see here, there are some things that are actually not profitable for the Christian church. They're actually useless. They are vanity, empty, a waste of space. On the island of Crete in the first century, Paul could point his finger at four things that certain people, influential people, were going around talking about And trying to get the conversation onto these topics. Four things foolish controversies. What are they? Here's the thing we don't know. They're so foolish, he doesn't want to give them any airtime. He just says they're really, really silly, these controversies. This word foolish, the Greek word behind it, is where we get our word moron from. (laughs) They're moronic silly controversies they are a waste of time don't be distracted by them that's the first one, secondly genealogies lists of who begat whom some parts of the bible have got a long lists of these things Matthew's gospel's got a long list of genealogy about Jesus and Luke's got a long one and there are others in, in the old testament, now it's not that those things aren't valuable, they're part of God's word but he's saying don't get caught up in them studying all the details, oh Why is this genealogy different from this one? And then there were lots of other genealogies they could find in Jewish literature. And become obsessed. It's an outlook that's obsessed with minutiae and just nitpicking around the details and actually then missing the big picture. Third thing is arguments or strife. This is where the mentality leads. These kinds of obsessive inquiries and controversies about little things are not really being done out of intellectual integrity they're being done in order to pick a fight it's an approach to truth where we're always looking for who I can fall out with who's not on our team and who on our team can we realise isn't really on our team till in the end your church consists of you meeting in your front room with your family and there are churches like that in this city because they've fallen out with everybody else And it comes out of a nitpicking, critical spirit. A few years ago, my colleague at the time and I decided we would run a Bible study, a public Bible study, in a basement of a shop in the city centre, which was a good idea at the time. And the thing we decided to do was to do the Bible study on the book of Revelation. I don't know why we chose to do that. It pulled all sorts of weird and wonderful characters out of the woodwork in Manchester. And they all came with their views on Revelation, which more than any other part of the Bible is guaranteed to give you controversies and arguments and strife and trouble. Sometimes I had to be more of a bodyguard than a Bible teacher. After one such study, I received the longest email I have ever received by somebody. On another occasion, a person didn't come to the study and emailed me to say he'd been up all night Figuring out that the end of the world was coming in 2060. So I suppose it's worth staying up for. But I actually had to just avoid the, con- the confrontation and not respond to it because it's a distraction. Fourth thing that Paul points out is quarrels about the law. Quarrels about the Old Testament law, that is. Quarreling about how we're going to interpret the Old Testament now that Jesus has come. Now, let me just point out what he's not talking about here. Paul is not knocking deep biblical study and deep biblical knowledge. He's not knocking theology. He himself was an expert in the Bible and he understood the Old Testament law back to front. He's also not saying that we should avoid any kind of disagreement or conflict or debate. Like, you know, people who are just afraid of conflict, want to pretend everything's all right because that leads to a false unity. We've got examples in the scriptures of people on the same team who have robust debate and graciously reach a conclusion together. So what is he saying to avoid? Verse 9, things that are unprofitable and useless. Things that are unprofitable and useless, they don't do any good in people's lives. They don't do any good in their minds, their thinking. They don't do any good in their character. He's talking about idle speculation on theological matters that are basically navel-gazing, And don't lead to a changed life. It doesn't do any good. It's out of touch with reality. And he's talking about a certain kind of attitude. An argumentative, nitpicking, critical spirit that enjoys picking a fight with other people over small points of biblical interpretation. Paul wants churches to keep the main thing, the main thing. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible, the high view of scripture the need for personal conversion and repentance toward God. The major things that all Christians throughout time have agreed with, the Trinity, the Church, these big things. Not waste time and fall out over small details. Now, I have to say, we Protestants have not always been very good at this because some feel that we always need something to protest about. We are Protestants, after all. But some peaceful Protestants in the early 17th century uh, Came up with these words. You're probably familiar with them. And they had it right. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In the essential things, we need to be unified. Essential, truths. In the non-essentials, the things that are secondary or tertiary importance, let's, be, let's give liberty. But in everything, love. Love charity so how about us let me ask a few questions if you go to a bible study group students at seven a life group does your contribution to that discussion build people up or cause arguments over silly things Is your study and reading, when you read or you listen to blogs and podcasts, is it building you and other people up and changing your life for good? Or is it nurturing pride? Is it nurturing a critical spirit because you're developing your own distinctives that are somehow better than everybody else? It makes you feel special. I encourage you to resist that. Do you enjoy picking a fight and arguing? Or are you striving to build unity in the church is your attitude kind like God our saviour whose kindness and love appeared or is your attitude hard mean spirited and cold you know the difference now these things might seem trivial uh, but they are important because they affect the unity of our people they're important enough for Paul to say to Titus hey avoid just avoid it shun it don't get drawn in But some people want to go a stage further. And so in verse 10 and 11, Paul goes a stage further. He says some people, thankfully it's not many, are hell-bent on causing chaos. And so this is what they do. You have to do with them. Verse 10, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. Listen to this. After that, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them some people in the Christian world who are divisive people they are intent on stirring up controversy and drawing a following after themselves the impact of their lifestyle the impact of their teaching is not to build the unity of a church but to draw a crowd after them and split a church apart and for them Paul says tough love tough love it's three strikes and you're out Now notice that even with the hard cases, there is some hope for restoration. You've got to warn them once. Come on, don't do this. Can't you see what it's doing? Then if they carry on with it, you give them a second warning. Come on now, please. For the sake of the good of the church, stop this behavior. But after that, he says, if they won't change, they must be put out of the church because they're going to rip apart the body of Christ. Now the New Testament has a fair process for this. It's found in Matthew chapter 18. And it's known as church discipline. Matthew 18 is the key text on it. I'll read it out to you if you want to follow along. It's in page 985. And we read here the instructions that are given uh, in the early church for dealing with conflict. It's in Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. A pagan or a tax collector means somebody who's not living in, within the, uh, the gospel, somebody who's not acting like a Christian. You, you, you're not... Um, refusing to speak to them, but you are viewing them and treating them as if they're not part of the church. So there's the process in the New Testament. It's often referred to as church discipline. There's a fair hearing. You go to the person first. You don't go and talk to all your mates first and criticize them. But if it goes on and on and on and on and the person still will not be reconciled, there's a point where they have to be asked to leave. So let me say something mildly shocking. Okay? Not everyone is welcome at Grace Church. Not everyone is welcome. People of all ethnic, social, and economic groups are welcome. People of different faiths and of no faith are welcome. But divisive people, people who want to tear the church apart, are not. Have nothing to do with them, he says. They are self-condemned. Now, why is he so hard on this? Because the unity of our people is so important. The unity of our people is so important for the health and the nurture of the church. A divisive person is following a trajectory that will rip the church apart. And Paul is passionate about it because he's passionate about the glory of Jesus and the good of the church. So what about us, Grace Church? What about us? I think the positive implication of this is that we must do everything in our power to pursue strong unity. Everything in our power to pursue strong unity. And let me say that I am not aware of any divisive people in our church. I'm not aware of any controversialists. So I'm not having a dig at anyone or using the pulpit to level a critique at somebody or other who I should have spoken to privately. I am grateful to God for the unity we enjoy, but we can't take it for granted. Just speak from experience at some previous churches. When churches get bigger, there's more danger of misunderstanding. There's more danger of miscommunication. There are many more more lines of communication, uh, as John referred to earlier on. There are also changes that happen when a church gets bigger. Now, nobody knows everything that's going on. It used to be that we all knew everyone, and we all knew pretty much what everything was going on. No more. Now, that can lead to disunity. When a church gets bigger, it may lead to a loss of influence. You may be that you don't get to do some of the things that you used to do. That can lead to disunity. And when a church gets bigger, there's a greater diversity of people coming in. We've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds. It's wonderful. We've got people from a Pentecostal background, people from an Anglican background, people from free church, independent church backgrounds, and all sorts of others. People coming from different cultures and Different language groups, different ages and stages of life. It's so wonderful. The bigger the church, the more diverse, the, the greater the range. It's a wonderful opportunity to show the glory of a diverse body of Christ, the multi-ethnic kingdom of God. But it's also a great opportunity to reach more and more people with the grace of God, and at the same time, it's a danger of greater disunity. There's a risk of misunderstanding. We have to cover each other's faults up with a lot of grace. There's more risks to unity. Here are some of the ways that disunity can play out. Preferring one leader over another leader. In the New Testament, uh, Paul talks about the Corinthian church. Some of them were saying, I follow Paul. And some were saying, well, I follow Apollos. And some others who were really super spiritual were saying, well, I follow Jesus. It can come out in uh, preferring one style of music to another. I follow Seb. I follow Matt Timmins and the folk band. Oh, I follow Dave Onak. He's got great rhythm. No, I follow Andrew. So spiritual. I know it's silly, but you can see how the kind of thing plays out. It can, it can happen by speaking preferentially about an, a certain neighborhood. I prefer Moss Side. We're really real. We're down with the people. I prefer Fallerfield. We're all young and cool here. Well, I prefer West Didsbury, yeah. (laughs) It could play out like this. Treating your life group like a little fiefdom or kingdom on its own that does its own thing on its own terms. But we're supposed to be part of a body. It could come up by setting up back channels of communication that are critical of another person or another group in the church. And so, unintentionally, you end up dividing relationships. Relationships. It can happen unintentionally by a a clique of friends that are so close there's no room for anybody else to get in. Now, let me say from past experience and from what some older Christians have said about our church, we have enjoyed a remarkable season of unity that has gone on for years. Praise God. We've enjoyed a remarkable spirit of unity, remarkable spirit of goodwill. I have not been in a church that has enjoyed this amount of unity for this long. Seriously in more than 30 years of church life. It is remarkable because everyone's from such very different backgrounds. That must mean that the grace of God, the warm grace of God is permeating your hearts and your minds and shaping you so that you're not being divisive. Praise God for that. And so let me just say, let us keep on keeping on. Let's be aware of the dangers of disunity. These are our people. Therefore, we need to be passionate about strong unity and pursue it. Larry Osborne is a pastor and a writer on the subject of church unity. He has a book called Sticky Church and a book called Sticky Teams. I think he means sticky as in sticking together, not covered in honey. And he says, unity is the one thing that can't be left to chance. It's the one thing that can't be left to chance. He says this, to this day, I consider maintaining unity as one of my most important leadership priorities, far ahead of other worthy goals. Such as evangelism, church growth, community outreach. He thinks unity is more important than all of them. Why? Because without unity, everything else falls apart. And some of you have experienced churches that fell apart. We don't want to do that. So Osborne continues, unity doesn't just happen. You have to work at it day after day. Because if you don't, it quickly slips away. So friends... Let me just point out how important every single one of you are in this pursuit of strong unity. Everyone is important. What's your contribution? Are you a unifying influence? Is there at the moment a spirit in your heart of us and them? You know, there's some group that you think of as, as them and then as us. Can I just ask you to crucify that? Does your speech and your conduct and your attitude tend to bring people together or drive them apart? How are you using your influence at Grace Church? You've got influence. Use it, I beg you, to, to pursue strong unity. Now, if you see the local church as your people, you will pursue strong unity and secondly, a much more, more quickly, rich community. Tail end of Paul's letters always seem a bit kind of a ragbag. Let's read verses 12 to 15 again. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. There's rich community hinted at in those words. You see, just pursuing unity for its own sake could produce a a group that's pretty tight and, and on the same page, but not very generous and not very gracious. So this section counterbalances it. We get a wonderful glimpse of the richness of the Christian community that Paul was building and its generosity here. He is rich in relationships. Now, Paul's one of the big names in the Bible. But Paul values and needs his team. He values and needs relationship. He's not a heroic lone ranger going out on his own. He needs his people. He's a real team player. See how he loves, he remembers, and he cares for everybody in his sphere of influence. He says, uh, please come, Titus, try and finish up and come to me at Nicopolis. I want to be with you. I've decided to spend the winter there. I want, let's, let's be together. And think about those guys that are with you at the moment. Think about Zenus, the lawyer. And Apollos, just make sure they've got everything they need for the journey. You know, if they need food or money or clothes or some sort of travel arrangements, help them out. Make sure they've got everything they need. It's very affectionate. There's a genuine overflow here of understanding these are our people and the kindness of God our Savior. Even to lawyers, (laughs) he wants to be generous. Rich relationship and rich in generosity, verse 13 See, they've got everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why? To provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Now, that's interesting. Do you ever think why the New Testament would say you should get a job and earn some money? It's not so you can pay the bills. It's not so you can necessarily get on the career ladder. It's so that you can provide for other people's needs. That's the priority. So that what we have is shared. Because as the Spanish say, mi casa su es casa, my house is your house. It's rather different to the Englishman's home is his castle. But this is what the early church was famed for. It was famed for its generosity, for its care, for everybody in the church and those around. Galatians chapter 6 says, provide for the needs of the household of God and those around you. They loved people. They were rich in generosity. Rodney Stark is a, a sociologist. He wrote a book trying to answer the question, how did the early church rise from being a despised minority in the Roman Empire? Despised. They were, people thought they were atheists because they didn't worship all the different gods. How did they get from being a despised movement with a few thousand people to being the dominant religion in the Roman Empire? And his conclusion is that the real reason for it was that they cared. They were rich in their generosity. In... Uh, the year 260 AD, there was a huge epidemic in the Roman Empire, a plague. Many thousands of people were dying. And most people were fleeing the cities, to trying to get out to the countryside, get out to the mountains in order to escape from plague and from death. But here's what an account written at the time says the Christians did. Most of our fellow Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves uh, or thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease. They drew on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner a number of elders, deacons, and lay people winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. This got to the attention of uh, one of the Roman emperors, Julian, who was not a friend of Christianity. He loathed it. And he said of them, uh, I think that uh, the impious Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. See, they shamed the world around by their generosity. They took their death upon them. What is it that can change people and make them so strong in unity, so rich in community, that they would do that for anybody around them? The answer is that they know God's grace. The last words of the letter, grace be with you all. Grace, the undeserved kindness of God to people who hated Him, that He would pour out Himself, everything He has, to win you back. The grace of Jesus, who is God our Savior, poured out on lost, broken, rebellious men and women to bring them into a new relationship. That's why it's good to pursue strong unity. That's why rich community is possible, because we're no longer. Alienated from God and strangers in the world, we belong to Him, therefore, we belong to each other. So, we finish this letter of Titus with these words Grace be with you all. May God's grace come to you even now. And if you're a person who has just been looking into the Christian faith, you're not sure where you stand, but you know that actually I do want to follow Jesus, then pray with me now that His grace will come to you even this morning and that He will change your heart and grant you that rebirth and that washing, that renewal by the Holy Spirit that only he can give supernaturally to you here and now. Let's pray together. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. Sovereign Lord, we have encountered, many of us, the generosity of Jesus. And we've seen it, not just when we came to know him, but every day since. And not just every day, every hour, every, every minute, we experience your generosity and your kindness to us. Lord, we thank you for the new community that you've called us to be part of, that we could now say, the church is my people. Help us, we pray, to pursue that unity That is pleasing to you help us to grow in in the generous hearts that would give all that we have for others because we know that you gave everything for us and father i pray now that if you are moving here by your spirit and there is a person who wants to become a christian to transfer their allegiance from themselves to you to come under the lordship of jesus that you would help him or her to do that now for their good and for your glory Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.